following program is from the Latin Pulse archives, so some of the news items included are no longer current. This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C., and Link TV. And now here's your host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This being our first podcast, a bit of explanation is due. For four years, Link TV produced a video series that provided in-depth analysis of issues in Latin America. Although that video series is now on hiatus, our podcast of the same name is produced in the spirit of that original program, and also with the support of Link TV and its longtime partner, the School of Communication at American University. This week, we feature two in-depth conversations with experts in the region. We'll be discussing the impact of the drug war in Mexico on that country's fragile democracy, and later, an interview exploring Cuba's current attempt at economic reforms during what is called the Special Period. But before all that, we have this week's highlights of news from Latin America, from election issues in Venezuela to calls of concern about Guatemala. Vanessa hayes Gonzati has the details. An opponent of President Hugo Chavez, Leopoldo Lopez, intends to run against him in October next year. The Inter-American Court of Human Rights ruled Venezuelan authorities should lift restrictions on Lopez. He says that Venezuela's highest court would violate constitutional rights if it maintains a ban on him running for office. The Venezuelan state has the obligation to obey this sentence. There is no way in which it would be justified for the government not to do so. This decision made by the Inter-American Court of Human Rights is of constitutional hierarchy. The Comptroller General sanctioned Lopez, a former Caracas district mayor, for misusage of funds in the budget. Although never sentenced in court, the Comptroller banned him from running for Metropolitan Mayor in the 2008 elections. Chavez criticized the court after the ruling last week, saying that it protected the corrupt and obeyed U.S. imperial power. Lopez wants to run in an opposition primary in February that will pick a candidate to challenge Chavez in next year's election. Experts fear that there is still fertile ground for corruption and violence to the drug trafficking in Guatemala. Mark Schneider and Javier Chirluisa of the International Crisis Group spoke at a meeting of the Inter-American Dialogue in Washington this week. Their main concern is Guatemala's insecurity and impunity. The program director of the International Crisis Group, Shirlisa, shared some numbers on this subject. The homicide rate has doubled from 20 per 100,000 inhabitants to more than 40 per 100,000 inhabitants. Schneider and Shirlisa agree that Guatemala's presidential candidates face both the November runoff election and the challenge of keeping the country safe. Union workers shut down an oil company in Colombia to protest for pay raises this week. The company stopped pumping almost a quarter million barrels a day. The Canadian Pacific Robiles Energy Corporation says the field in southern Colombia accounts for a quarter of Colombia's oil production. The union demands the company increase wages and improve working conditions and health care. Workers also shut down the operation for a day and a half in mid-July. Pacific Robiles operates the field along with Colombia's state oil company, Ecopetrol. 
About 12,000 people work at that location. This is Vanessa Jesus Gonzari reporting for Latin Pulse. Thank you, Vanessa. And now our in-depth interview about the effects of the drug war in Mexico. But first, a listener advisory. This interview will feature graphic subject matter that may disturb some listeners. Our guest was once one of the leading news anchors in Panama and currently is the Senior Director for Special Projects for the International Center for Journalists in Washington, D.C. In that job, Luis Boteo often travels the world training journalists on ethics, on investigative reporting, and the role of journalists in society. Often, Luis, you've worked with journalists in Latin America, and you've just come back from a conference discussing free speech issues pertaining to the coverage of Mexico, the drug war, and other important issues for the region. Can you tell us a little bit about that meeting? Yes. Thank you, Rick, for, for, for the invitation. And Yes, you're right. Uh, as you know, um, Latin America, especially in, in Mexico, has been uh, suffering from, uh, from the uh, drug trafficking and, and organized crimes for many years now. And we were... Uh, and that has triggered other social problems like immigration. So uh, I was just recently uh, at, a, at the Austin Forum for Journalists uh, from Latin America where we were discussing how we are covering the whole immigration issue and how uh, the violence is affecting the way we do that job. And it's really, uh, uh, we are in a very critical situation because we don't only have to face with the drama of people being dis displaced by the violence, not only in Mexico, but in Colombia, in Central America, in Bolivia, many countries where you have indigenous people, a large population of indigenous people living in rural areas, when you have organized crime coming, uh, and just because they are on the path of the drug, where, you know, they, they, they ship drug throughout the region, and they are on that path, they need, they need people who could either cooperate with them or they are killed. So you have journalists not only trying to cover the drama of these people being displaced from their homes, but also risking their life as they do so because the, uh, the drug lords do not really want any kind of information, not, o not only about their, cr their, their criminal activities, but, not but also about their social impact that is having in the region. The way that human trafficking has become part of this equation has really changed in the past five years. It used to always be there was drugs going north, guns going south, but now we also have the human trafficking as part of this. Definitely, and, and it's really horrible. We have seen journalists, uh, we got a, a group of journalists uh, doing in-depth reporting, and they were trying to capture the drama of these people as uh, they face all these criminals, and, and now... The drug was one of the businesses, but now the human trafficking became another business. How that happened? They start doing these mass kidnappings. They, what they do is that they, they see people immigrating from Guatemala, Honduras, on their way to, to, to the north, to the U.S., trying to cross the border. But in, the, in, that, in that path, uh, drug traffickers have seen that these people usually come with some cash, because they need to pay the coyotes, the people who cross them. So they kidnap them. They kidnap bosses full of people from around the world. And what I'm surprised is not, it's not only Mexicans who are immigrating. You got all Central America uh, at a recent mass kidnapping. There were found bodies, really, because 
they, they, they usually are killed uh, by, by the criminals operating in these zones. Uh, people from Asia, from Africa, and uh, they, they put them in different homes and they say, tell me the name of your relatives back home and we'll call them. So they separate them. People who may have some money, people who really are poor, the, poor, the poorest people around the world, they put in another house and they start calling and they classify them. These are the maybes. These are the people whose family might send us some money. They are, we are negotiating. These are the people who are definitely won't give us anything. And they're usually people that are killed. Uh, we, we got a, a drama of uh, women uh, who were kidnapped by these gangs. Uh, and they are forced to work. They are forced to wash the clothes of, of the drug traffickers. Uh, they, you know, they are abused, sexually abused. Uh, and if they don't pay, they, they, they become slaves. Uh, I mean, I don't know if there is such a war, a, a war, but I would say like an underground a slavery operation, which is probably even worse because nobody really knows you are a slave. Uh, so this is a, a drama what, I mean, the, the murder, uh, they, they, they have to commit a mass murder because they suddenly have a hundred people in the house and the how they can pay any any ransom, so they are mutilated and uh, usually put into big uh, holes where they burn their mutilated bodies. I mean, it's uh, uh, the, we are learning about all these things in the last year of uh, how bad the situation is because authorities in Mexico have found recently. Uh, these uh, these holes with, with bodies that you can really recognize. It uh, seems impossible to me, but some of these stories, the horror of these stories, that there are parts of Tamaulipas and other parts of border states, border Mexican states, where the central government doesn't have control any longer and where journalists really are not welcome and are at threat for death, almost as if they got off an airplane. They would they would be found very soon uh, by these groups. So how are we getting these stories? And just brave journalists going in? What's happening? Well, that's a sad thing, is that we are not getting the full stories. Uh, You got a a media extremely intimidated. You got, unfortunately, uh, authorities, local authorities in most of these places, uh, some of them co-opted, some of them, you know, corrupted. Uh, and the media sometimes uh, censor themselves uh, because they don't want to uh, risk their life that much, and sometimes they do. So the little bit of information that we know is because of these courageous journalists who have actually uh, tried to follow the path of those immigrants. And as they actually went through, they found all this other information that they actually were not even going to cover. Uh, amongst other ways we have found out is by some um, people who have been kidnapped, but that, you know, uh, by some uh, uh, kind of action, you know, by some kind of action of God or something, they have managed to escape and have come out a few of them there to talk. Because guess, remember, the organized crime already got their phone numbers, already got 
where they live, in what country, and who their relatives are. And they are for moms telling you, we're following your kids. They better come up with the ransom. So when you get out of there, if you are alive, you don't really want to talk to anybody. So we have had a few accounts that has managed to come out and know the, the how, you know, uh, and we know the terror, how, how horrible the situation is. The authorities do not have the capacity. That's one, one uh, another problem. Uh, in most of these countries, the, the, the police and their armies are only equipped. Uh, and, and I think internationally, you know, we don't really know how, you know, the extent of this problem yet. When we're talking about this, a lot of people would say um, one of the solutions of getting the information and trying to find out more about what's happening in northern Mexico these days would be the Internet or social networks. But there's even been problems with that recently. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it, it's just amazing. We are, you know, we are learning, uh, and I think uh, the authorities are learning, and now the drug traffickers are learning that. So, um, so you were talking about drug traffickers learning, using Twitter? Yeah, they, they well, they have their own PR operations too. They contra, they, they, they create, they, they, they have experts on, I guess, crisis management, and they, they counterattack by using. I would say it's, it's funny to mention that word because it's usually used on military songs, like conventional and unconventional. Well, they they use conventional military force, but also unconventional ways to to uh, counterattack propaganda. So they not only intimidate the journalists, they co-op journalists too. They pay too. Uh, they they also put um, announcements on overpass on highways when they want to send a message. Uh, they are using all kind of uh, ways to reach out to the people and to, to, make, to send their message across. And recently, uh, actually last week, in, a, in a, a probably one of the most dramatic actions was when, I mean, two, two, two major events. One, the government trying to censor the people and, and some, some kids using social networks to kind of fool people about violence, like oh, there is something here, uh, so it would create commotion. So, the, the, so these were false reports. They were false reports, and the government immediately uh, uh, is trying to impose laws. I mean, these kids were jailed. It's trying to impose laws to censor some of that information. But the other, in the other extreme, was uh, last week when. Uh, you know, because the media is not reporting. Nobody dares to talk about what's going on in the country. People are trying to protect themselves by informing themselves now using technology. So um, some people are using social networks to say, don't go to this area right now because actually there is a shootout there. Uh, there, there, there is uh, violence in this area. Don't, don't go to this place right now. And, and the drug traffickers, of course, they don't like that kind of bad propaganda because they are the ones behind all that violence. So what they did is they tracked these messages. Uh, they, are, they may be very sophisticated. They tracked the messages. They tracked the people who were trying to report and to warn others, and they killed them. Um, they um, uh, basically committed, you know, a horrible uh, 
beat up. They beat up all these kids, two kids, and they hang them on an overpass for everybody to see with a sign saying these are for everybody who dares to use now social networks to report about our activities. And they sign with their, you know, their gang letter, which is Z, that is uh, after the Zeta cartel, uh, which basically operates in, in northern Mexico. So we, 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 this is horrifying. I mean, this is going to reshape the way even journalists were. Journalists were using all these new techniques, crowdsourcing, to get people being the source of information. Well, how better that can be? And now we we get all these other forces uh, in the organized crime saying, hey, people won't be your sources anymore. Sobering stories. We'll hear more from that wide-ranging interview with Luis Boteo in the coming weeks. Up next, a discussion about the current state of Cuba's economy, which asks the question, can the island survive the special period? A restless energy blows across the globe. The desire for human rights. Yet every day people are tortured, imprisoned, executed, or disappeared. Simply for their identity or their beliefs. That's why Amnesty International speaks out. To protect people's basic human rights. To change the sounds of suffering. To the sounds of freedom. Call 1-800-AMNESTY. It's your human right. 1-800-AMNESTY. Our next guest, Eric Hirschberg, is the director of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. He's also a longtime board member of the North American Congress on Latin America, or NACLA. He is the guest editor of the most recent issue of the NACLA Report on the Americas, a special issue focusing on Cuba. Eric, in your preface to the magazine's special issue, you write about Cuba's lost generation during the special period and the corruption eroding the ideals of the Cuban Revolution. That's not something that will endear you in Havana, even though you also write about how you are supportive of the ideals of the revolution. Well, that's an interesting way of framing it. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how the piece is received in Havana. And it was a collection of essays that included a number of, um, I think, some of Cuba's most interesting intellectuals, both very young and kind of mid-career um, and people who are not um, typically associated uh, outside Cuba with the dissident movement. I mean, so I think that what we tried to convey in this magazine uh, were ideas that reflect uh, where things stand from the perspective of people who are sympathetic to the revolution, um, both to its nationalist aspirations and its social equity aspirations, but who at the same time recognize that Cuba is in very big trouble. Uh, Cuba is in very big trouble because the economy is incapable of producing what is needed for the basic welfare of the population, and the political system is stuck uh, in a circumstance where it's incapable of generational renewal or institutional reform. I think one of the things that you talk about is that institutional reform, is that even if Raul Castro puts forward this wide list of economic changes that he wants to have happen, with people being allowed into the informal sector, sector and doing things that are off the black market, that it's not enough that there's just too much corruption? Well, I'm not sure I would frame it so much in terms of corruption. Um, in fact, I'm reluctant to use the term corruption. Uh, I think my 
central criticism of the reforms that were put forth, and just for, for your listeners, the, the principal reform, although there are a lot of other secondary reforms, but the principal reform is saying that from now on, a Cuban who wants to start a business can start a business, because that used to be forbidden. It was a state-controlled economy. You can start a business, and here are 180 activities that it's now legal to start a business in. Um, But the problem that some of us have is that it's perfectly fine that in those 180 activities you can start a business. But what about lots of other activities, first of all? And secondly, why are none of those activities knowledge, technology, and education intensive when, if anything, a gain of the revolution was having trained, having educated well generations of Cubans. And the state has maintained the control over those sectors of the economy that are actually capable of producing wealth and broad social welfare. And so what's opened up is the opportunity to engage in informal commerce in selling pizza on the street, in being a clown at uh, children's birthday parties, uh, at being a musical group, um, but not in web design, in the development of strategic plans for businesses, and so on and so forth, not in engineering services. And if Cuba is going to embark on a dynamic trajectory of development that benefits that population and makes it possible to continue the public investments in education and social welfare and so on, it's going to have to have an economic foundation that draws on sectors of the economy that are absent from these reforms. So it's really more a conceptual problem rather than a problem of corruption as we conventionally define it that worries us. To the extent that there that corruption enters into it, and again, I don't think that's a term we used, but it is the case that in the unproductive and in many respects irrational economic framework that is in place in Cuba today, there are sectors that have political power and are also gaining economic power. And one hypothesis that we put forth is that one of the reasons that the reforms that needed to happen didn't happen is that there are groups in power who prefer the status quo where they're cleaning up through a set of economic distortions. What groups are we talking about? The military? I think the military is part of it. Uh, I think there are sectors of the party, uh, but I think the party has multiple currents within it. Uh, I think there are people who are associated with the large state enterprises. And in general, one of the key bifurcations in Cuba today is between people who have access to hard currency and people who don't. And so if you were trying to do a kind of political mapping of what would be the constellation of interests on one side or another of the divide over how to reconfigure the economy. Clearly, one central cleavage will be between those who have hard currency resources and those who don't. That right now is the fundamental dividing line in terms of defining dynamics of inequality in Cuba. And we, and I speak here as a political scientist, we don't actually have any decent study of what the politics are inside the Cuban regime between competing policy options. Um, But we think, and by we, I mean myself, but also colleagues with whom I'm working on these issues in Cuba and outside, that that's a kind of analysis that if we could do it, we would learn a lot. And, of course, the regime doesn't want you to do that analysis. No, that's not something that I would be given permission, a visa, to come in and study. Um, But the question I have is the Chinese were able to make this leap forward 
of changing their system and becoming communists with a capitalist economy and doing quite well at it. The Cubans have looked to the Chinese as models in the past. Why can't the Cubans make the same leap? Well, this is a really interesting question, Rick. I mean, the the question of the what are the implications of the Chinese model is something that's been on the table in Cuba for at least 15 years. I first started working with Cuban economists taking trips to China to get a handle on how was this happening uh, in around 96, 98. And what was very interesting was we would try to get people to China, but also to Vietnam. And frequently, the Cuban authorities would decide that wasn't convenient and would shut down the trip. And it was first possible to do Vietnam, not China, actually. And the resistance to China was several fold. But one of them was that ultimately, what Deng Xiaoping called Chinese uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics looks to quite a number of us like capitalism. And there was a profound ideological resistance inside Cuba to embarking on a capitalist path. And there was a sense that China had moved in a capitalist direction, in an inequality exacerbating direction, and so on and so forth. Um, The other thing that I would point out in terms of the reticence about pursuing a Chinese model from the point of view of people inside the political system who are committed to its continuity, and I might even say committed to its stagnant continuity, um, is that the Chinese model... In the Chinese model, the Communist Party can retain control of the commanding heights of the economy and can retain a monopoly on the political system uh, because of the kinds of growth rates it's achieving and because of the kinds of autonomy that a state of that size, capacity, extension, and in that geographical location can, can, can at least um, contemplate, uh, imagine. Cuba is in a very different place. I mean, Cuba is not the other side of the Pacific Ocean, a massive country with a billion people. I mean, Cuba is 11 million people um, uh, with remarkably low productivity, relatively few natural resources, um, uh, with um, surrounded, uh, feeling itself surrounded by the United States, even though the United States is only on you know one side across the Florida Straits. Um, it you know and 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 China and Vietnam had the rest of East Asia booming in the last third of the 20th century and into this century. Latin America until the last eight years has not been the neighborhood that was going to make you prosperous. So let me intervene and ask about the U.S. in this regard. You bring up the embargo in your piece. Um, How much does it have to play? Is it a small piece of what the Cubans have to face or not? It's a pretty small piece. I mean, it's a pretty small piece. And one of the things that I think has been interesting under Raul, um, that is Raul Castro as opposed to his brother Fidel Castro, um, Raul Castro has um, obviously condemned the embargo as as we all do, um, but has been clear that the problems with the Cuban economy are Cuban problems. And the solutions to the Cuban economic conundrum are Cuban. But at the end of the day, the issue is that they're not generating the resources they need to buy the things that they don't produce themselves. And keep in mind that while uh, some aspects of the embargo became harsher um, during, during the Bush administration, 
one thing that happened was that agricultural trade was opened quite dramatically. And so um, in one of the places that the Cuban economy is most unviable, that is agriculture, uh, the Cubans are importing nearly a billion dollars a year from the United States right now in foodstuffs. I'm not sure we hear any solutions. There are new generations of Cubans who, across a variety of different domains, um, there are people, a lot of people, in Cuba in their 20s and their 30s who are doing some really very exciting stuff and who are very much trying to imagine what kind of society might they somehow construct. And right now, I think there's a sort of a standoff between that generation that is longing for something different and creative and that is talented uh, and an ossified political system that can't give up. Well, with that perspective, I'm going to have to stop you there. But thank you so much for joining us today. Eric Hirschberg, the director of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. Thank you. We'll have more from that in-depth interview with Eric Hirschberg in the coming weeks on Latin Pulse. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website. You can find it at www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Vanessa Jesus Gonzati and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV. All additional music provided by Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. Copyright 2011, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>